the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. to the Friday show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, whatever's on your heart. All you have to do is provide the phone call, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email your questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to do that is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, we end another week uh, tonight here at uh, our church. Uh, I'm going to be starting a brand new book. We are going to be opening the book of Philippians. What a necessary book that is for the time that we live in uh, right here. Just uh, how do you have joy in the middle of all of the pain that we see in this world? Um, I promise you in this book, the Apostle Paul is going to tell us exactly how to do it. This is really, really an important New Testament book, and I'm going to go pretty slow through it. I'm going to do an introduction tonight in the first eight verses, I think, and and then we'll, we'll uh, go on from there. But we start Philippians. Um, Sunday, of course, we're in church. I'm going to be finishing the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we've been in the Gospel of Mark for a little over a year. And we are going to be finishing. This is our final study. And then a week from Sunday, I'm going to be starting in the book of Acts on Sunday. So that's what we've got going on here at Calvary Chapel. And wherever it is that you go to church this week, just be a man or a woman who's available to God. God, use me. Divine appointments. I'm I'm ready to serve, Lord. So whatever is your heart, show me the lost and the hurting and the hungry and the broken, the needy, the confused, the fearful. And and uh, offer yourself to be used for the Lord's glory. And it'll change your whole church experience. Well, here's some questions that we can touch on while we wait for any of your phone calls. The first one comes from Vanessa. She says, can a single man be a pastor? Yes, Vanessa, a single man can be a pastor. By the way, the Apostle Paul, who wrote sort of the guidelines for um, the qualifications for a pastor, he was a single man. And uh, he actually said that I wish that all of you were as I am. And the idea is uh, he understood, of course, it's not good for a man to be alone. But but what he meant was if you're single, you, you can be completely and utterly devoted to the service of God. You don't have to be distracted. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but you don't have to be distracted by any other purpose or any other person. But you can just sort of jump in um, 100% in your service for the Lord. And um, um, I will say, Vanessa, I think personally 
it would be very, very difficult. Um, I, I actually, I'm the regional director for the Calvary Chapel organization here in in Texas, and um, I actually had one single pastor um, uh, among all the Calvary chapels. And uh, he he recently got married, so um, I, I don't know any others right now. Uh, but uh, yes, a single man can be a pastor. We had a pastor here in San Antonio uh, who was single for a long time and, and just did a wonderful job. But he was always praying for that wife, and the Lord brought him a a, a, a really, really good one. So I just think it would be hard. Uh, I could not do what I do without Paula. So um, yes, a man can be single and be a pastor, but I think that's going to be a really difficult situation. It's better, I think, for somebody to be married. But no prohibitions for that. Jared says, Jesus said that we're to keep the Sabbath, and Paul said we don't have to. Why does Paul carry more authority than Jesus? Well, he doesn't really carry more authority than Jesus, Jared, but what you've got to do is be able to read the context. Jesus' ministry was for and to Jews. Uh, Jesus said about tithing, you tithe and it's right that you do so. He, he wasn't saying that that's a New Testament construct, that's part of the Old Testament law. Well, Jesus' ministry was to fulfill the law, so of course Jesus kept the Sabbath. Paul, he didn't necessarily say we don't have to. It just is clear that the Sabbath day or the day of corporate worship was changed from the original Jewish Sabbath Saturday to Sunday in honor of the Lord's resurrection. So um, remember, the Sabbath law was given to Israel. It wasn't given to us. And I think part of the problem, Jared, is we read those Old Testament passages and we say we're to keep the Sabbath uh, forever or, or or it's an everlasting covenant. That was a covenant that was only made between God and Abraham and, and Abraham's descendants, of course. So that wasn't a covenant that we ever made with the Lord. And if we don't understand that, then the 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 framework becomes sort of nonsensical and um you know you're jumping back and forth do we keep the law don't we keep the law jesus canceled the written code that was against us paul writes and because he canceled it he replaced it with a better covenant jesus in the upper room said this is the cup of the new covenant written in my blood and that's when he established a completely new covenant and there's nothing about the original jewish sabbath worship or corporate gathering uh, in that new covenant. Nothing whatsoever. And then just again, by practice, we saw that the um, New Testament church celebrated the resurrection of the Lord, which is sort of the validating sign of the, the veracity of the new covenant. So it's not that Paul has more authority than Jesus, uh, Jesus is simply speaking to Jews about things Jewish. And we're not Jews, Jared, so that's why. Good question. Here is a question from Irene. It's a good question. I wish, I wish I had this yesterday, Irene, with Paula here. Uh, does submission in marriage mean that I have to do whatever my husband decides? That seems unfair. No, that's not what submission is. Remember, and, and, and we forget this, Irene. Um, we're to submit. Ephesians five verse twenty one says, "Submit to one another, husbands and wives. Submit to one another out of fear of God." So we submit one to another, and in doing so, we're really submitting to the authority of God. And, and of course, we know what God wants us to do because He's given us His word. Now, it's true that it does say, "Wives submit to your husbands," but here's the key: as unto the Lord. So your husband can't just tell you what to do, and he can't tell you to do something that's ungodly, and you have to do it simply because God is is uh, has put him in charge, or so you're, you think. That's not at all what it means. It simply means that there has to be order in the home. And there's only two places where male headship is ordained by God. That's in the home, the Christian home, and in the church. Now, male headship doesn't mean males are more spiritual or males are smarter or males are even better leaders. It simply is the order that was established by God. And we we understand why that was the case. It was Eve who was deceived, we're told by Paul, uh, and not Adam. 
Adam went into it with his eyes open. And remember that submission, the way we understand it, is uh, a bad fruit of the curse. So yes, the husband is the spiritual head of the household, and he is more accountable to be obedient to the Lord, Irene, than you would be to your husband. So no, you don't have to do whatever your husband says to do. But in matters of spirituality, if your husband says, we're going to have a Bible study at home, if your husband says, this is the church that we're going to go to, if the husband is telling you to do things that are not ungodly, that don't contradict what the Word of God says, then yes, you should submit, not because your husband is trustworthy. Sometimes I forget to say this, and I don't want to say forget, so I'm going to even repeat it. You don't submit to your husband because you trust him. You submit to your husband because you trust Jesus. And if you're not submitted to the headship of your husband in your home, Irene, then you're out of order. You're being disobedient to the Lord, and and your access to God is broken by that kind of rebellion. So your husband's the head of the house, but he can't tell you to do ungodly things. That's when you draw the line and say, no, I'm not going to do that. That's that's ungodly, and uh, I'm not going to submit to you to do that. Now, let me also say this. Irene, submission, we hate the S-word in our culture. Um, we hate it. We don't want to be under the authority of anybody, but in particular in a marriage when we see all of the failures and the weaknesses that our husbands might have. But here's the deal. A husband and a wife, Amos 3.3, 3, says, How can two walk together unless they agree to do so? So a husband and a wife who are to be submitted to one another, um, the the only way you can do that is to agree to be submitted to the Word of God. And so this is the way leadership should go in the home. The husband and the wife should get together and make an agreement, sort of a covenant between husband and wife, that that when we have disagreements, we're going to settle them by going to the Bible. And the Bible has answers for every problem, either very specifically or generally or principally. And so we're going to submit to the Word of God. It's real simple to do that. And then you make that choice. And then when disagreements come, your opinion or his opinion doesn't really matter at all. Those aren't important. What is important is, God, what do you want? And Irene, I've said this a bunch of times, and people really don't like it when I say it. But but the truth is you never have to disagree again. All you have to do is, with your husband, agree together to agree with Jesus. And if you'll do that, then... All of the the questions will be answered, and God will get the glory. And even when you've got to deny your flesh, and at first it hurts, you're going to find that God's way is better than yours, and you're going to be in that place of blessing uh, with every day of your life. And husbands and wives simply needn't argue about these things. I'm going to say one more thing, only tangentially connected. Every time a husband and a wife are at odds with one another, especially when that that being at odds results in arguing and ugly conversation and temper tantrums. Um, we need to be ashamed of ourselves. We've given in to our flesh. We've let flesh try to ruin what God has done. What God has put together, let no man corrupt. And 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 all we have to do is just remember that when we start to get angry. Pray, take a walk, do whatever you need to do, but but simply say, okay, Lord, forgive me for wanting my way. And flesh always wants its own way. So all you do is you simply agree to agree with Jesus. And I promise you that will be a a much better relationship and a, and a, and a way where you really be able to hear the voice of the Lord answering your prayers. Thank you for that. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Scott. A friend of mine doesn't care if he goes to hell. How do you approach someone like that? You just tell him, well, you don't care now, but you will care then. And then you pray for him. You know, I think, Scott, sometimes we try to, to debate or argue with people like this. Um, just tell him, you're your friend, I'd hate to see you in hell. 
But whether or not you believe it or whether or not you think it's going to be a, a, a party, um, you're wrong. And I'm going to be praying for you. And then it'd probably be a pretty good idea not to hang around with that guy for any longer. So I, I don't think you approach him. There's no formula. Don't cast your pearls before swine, Jesus says. And sometimes it's just a warning. You don't know what you're talking about. And I'm sorry you don't. And I'd hate to get to heaven and see you not there. But if that's your approach to life here, and that's how casual you are about eternity being tormented, then I probably need to put some distance between you and me. That's what it means to stand for the Lord's God, and sometimes it's going to cost you friends. And I think that's the most important thing you can do. I once did a, a funeral of a of the son of a friend of mine. Um, this is pretty early in my being a pastor here at Calvary Chapel. Um, it was in Mesa, Arizona. His son got murdered in a drive-by shooting. I, I watched this kid grow up. He raced BMX bicycles with my sons. And his father worked for me, and we became really good friends. And he called me and said, "Nobody can do this funeral but you." And I said, "But you know, Daryl, I'm gonna. You know, you know me. I'm gonna tell the truth." He says, "You say whatever you need to say, but, but I need you to be here to do the funeral." So we went and did it. And uh, you know, he was pledging in with the Hell's Angels. He was a bunch of Hell's Angels guys were there. And, you know, they, they let on like the whole thing was a big party in hell and Daryl just got to go to the to the, the party ahead of everybody else. And I knew there were some Christians there, not many, but I knew there were some Christians there. And after listening to the people who wanted to share a little bit, and we kept that at a minimum, but, but uh, they just wanted to share. And uh, as the officiant, I went up and said, you, all of you need to be ashamed of yourselves. And I talked about the boy that I knew growing up who wasn't like this. And it was really quiet. My sons were with me at the funeral. And um, my youngest was especially scared. He said, Dad, they're going to be mad at you because of the things you said. But you know what? The Lord was there. And it's just one of those things. So distance yourself from him. Tell him the truth in love. Let him know you love him but then distance yourself from him. Thanks, Scott. Maddie says, I was baptized as a baby, but I just became a believer. Should I get baptized again? Two things, Maddie. Congratulations on being a believer. Uh, Welcome to the family of God. And the second thing is, yes, you should be baptized again because you have not been baptized Uh, of your own free will. Infant baptism has no value or virtue at all. Not anything at all. Now, we dedicate babies here at Calvary Chapel. That's sort of the the alternative to infant baptism. And we do that with biblical precedents, but there's no biblical warrant for uh, infant baptism. And I know that's what religions do, uh, but the reality is there's no value at all. So you were baptized as a baby, but recognizing you're a sinner, you were born again. And now you get baptized um, as your public confession of faith in Jesus Christ. It's a, 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 a one of the two sacraments that we have in the church, communion being the other. And um, apart from those two sacraments, all other religious exercise is futile. So, yeah, get baptized again. Invite your family and friends to, to be there. Uh, it's your opportunity to say, I, I used to serve the devil, and, and now I'm serving Jesus Christ. The old me going into the water is being buried, and coming up out of the water is the new me and the resurrection power of Jesus Christ being born. And that's the public profession. You know, Maddie, I'm I'm getting ready. I just said that at the beginning of the program to start a week from this Sunday in the book of Acts. So I've been reading ahead in the book of Acts and uh, just um, um, today, in fact, I was reading about uh, the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 uh, being baptized when, when Philip 
uh, was sort of told by an angel to go down to Gaza, and he just had a divine appointment. He met this Ethiopian eunuch, a very important official. And uh, the eunuch was reading from the, the scroll of Isaiah. And Philip just said, perfect opportunity. Do you understand what you're reading? He says, well, how can I understand what I'm reading if, in fact, nobody explains it to me? And so Philip started that very passage and told him the truth about Jesus Christ. The Ethiopian unit got saved. And, and while they were traveling along, there was some water right along the road. And, and he said, well, there's some water. What keeps me from being baptized? And Philip, of course, said nothing. And then he baptized him. And Philip immediately was taken away. And the Ethiopian eunuch was just filled with joy. Being baptized is a step of obedience. We don't get baptized to get saved. We get baptized because we are saved. And now, of your own free will, Maddie, you can make that choice. Thank you for that. Amber. Was hair really the source of Samson's strength? Amber, the answer is no. Um, the hair was a symbol of the source of Samson's strength. It was a, a covenant he made with God, his parents made with God. And uh, that covenant was a vow, a Nazarite vow. And the, the, the importance of that vow was he was God's anointed. He was God's chosen. So the the... the the source of his strength was his relationship with God. And whenever God needed Samson, remember, he was a judge or a deliverer. And whenever Samson, uh, God needed to, to deliver his people, he used Samson, as flawed as Samson was. He used Samson, and people marveled at his feats of strength. Um, something I, I like to talk about, Amber, with Samson is that he didn't he wasn't like a big buff guy. Um, you know, we always picture him. There's a great movie. It, it's so old, I don't know how you'd find it now, but it's it's about Samson, and it, it, it uh, stars an old actor. It's black and white. Uh, the actor is Victor Mature. And that was a pretty good rendition because he wasn't, like, super buff or anything. Now we see the the movies or the TV series about Samson, and or and and he's all buff and chiseled. Well, remember they they didn't they couldn't understand what the source of his strength was. So he was an ordinary looking guy, but when the power of God came upon him, he was extraordinarily strong, and he did these marvelous feats. But it wasn't his hair; it was his commitment to his vow to God. And when Delilah cut his hair off she essentially cut off the symbol of that commitment to God. And Samson was on his own. One of the saddest verses in the New Testament, in, in the book of Judges. I'm sorry, in, in, in our Bibles completely. Uh, it's in the book of Judges. It says, um, And the Spirit of God departed from Samson, and he knew it not. And he was like everybody else then. And of course, that's when he became a source of mocking and jokes. So no, it wasn't hair. It was his commitment. Uh, my producer just said the Samson movie is on Amazon and YouTube for about $2.99. Uh, it's it's worth watching. It really is worth watching. Good question. Got time for one more this half of the program. Remember, we'd love your live calls and questions. 340-9585 or toll free. 877-630-5757. Five, seven. This is from Mark. He says, uh, I often pray to the Holy Spirit. Is that okay? Or should all my prayers be to the Father? Mark, it's okay. It's okay. Now, the Holy Spirit will point you to Jesus, but it's okay. There, there's no competition between Father, Son, and Spirit. It's not like they're in heaven with a, a running toll. You know, uh, uh, the Father saying, wait a minute, they've got too many people praying to Jesus and too many people praying to the Holy Spirit, so why aren't the people praying to me? No, uh, they're all completely God. They're completely equal. They have different roles, and the roles of the Son and the Spirit are both subservient. The role of the Son is subservient to the Father. The role of the Spirit is subservient to Jesus because Jesus pointed to the Father and the Spirit points to Jesus. But you're perfectly fine praying to God in whatever form. 
Um, I have always prayed primarily to Jesus. Now, I pray to the Father um, like everybody else does. Uh, I thank him, but 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 from from me starting out with a grateful, worshipful heart, um, my conversations, Mark, are almost always with Jesus. And it's because Jesus made the Father real for us. Jesus revealed the Father. He's the exact image, the, 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 the duplicate. If, if the Father had skin and bones, if we could see that glory, we would see Jesus. And so Jesus makes it real. Uh, that's why he came. He had to become one of us so that we then could relate to God the Father, God who is spirit. And that's the only way. The Holy Spirit is also the most difficult to relate to uh, simply because he, he's clearly spirit. And, um, you know, we have a, a tragic misunderstanding about what his role is. And his job is to point to Jesus. Good question, Mark. We've got 30 minutes left in our week. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is The Word to Stand Up For Life. I'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the program can you believe this is our final 30 minutes of the week paul and i were laughing this morning i said paul this does not seem like friday date day was yesterday it seems like it was three weeks ago that's how fast things are going and um so we got 30 more minutes. Let's go to line one. We've got an anonymous phone call from San Antonio. You're on the air. All right, Pastor Ron, there's something in the scripture I'm, I'm hoping I read where in some battle God gave uh, one man the strength to kill 100, another man strength to kill 200, and another man strength to kill 300. I'm trying to find out what scripture did I read that in. Yeah, you, you go to go to First and Second Samuel. Uh, the, these are the exploits of David's mighty men, and it describes right. it describes their um, their their victories and what they were renowned for. So it's David's mighty men, and you can just look that up. I don't have the scripture off the top of my head, but uh, David's mighty men, and it's really interesting reading. I mean, you talk about some really really tough guys. Uh, they were tough guys. So that will be easy to track down for you. Thank you. I appreciate the call very, very much. Let's go to Vicki online, too. Vicki, thank you for holding. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. I just had a question. Uh, now that I ha- we have adult children, and one of them is in the process. She's been separated for about a year and a half, and um, we were disappointed, of course, as a Christian parent, but... The problem we've had is when she was first separated, then now she's living with another man, mm. and um, they, her current husband and her, are living like they are divorced. He has them, the children, two children for a week, she has them for a week. We're coming upon holidays, and we had expressed our desire not to have the man that she's living with come to our house for holiday events. But it's been over a year and a half, and now she's angry about that and does not want to participate with us. Are we interfering? Where we sh- Should we just step back and let them? I don't, I don't know how to handle it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think you've handled it correctly, Vicki. I would not let my son bring—we have two sons. I would not let either one of them uh, bring somebody to the house that would give the appearance of acceptance of the relationship that's in sin. Your daughter knows better. And if she's angry um, by taking a stand with Jesus, then you're going to let, you're letting her know that as much as you love her and as broken hearted as you are over all of this, um, I love Jesus more than I love you. And, and, and this is something that the Holy Spirit can use to, uh, to, to sort of knock on the door of her heart. Obviously, she was raised in church. 
You need to treat her like an unbeliever, treat her like she needs to get saved, and uh, keep sharing the goodness of God with her. But to allow a family that's living in sin to your home on the holidays, I mean, especially Christmas Day, Thanksgiving, um, we're, we're, we're there. Jesus is our guest of honor. And I think it's just one of those times, as painful as it is, and believe me, I don't say this cavalierly, but as painful as it is, we've simply got to get to the place where, okay, I'm going to leave you alone. You deal with your sin. I'm going to leave you alone. Uh, she knows she's doing wrong. You know she's doing wrong. And if you would give any appearance that, that it's okay with you, and that's what having them over would be uh, at a family situation like that, um, I just wouldn't allow it. I just wouldn't allow it. And I know that's going to hurt your heart. I know that's going to be for a, a painful and sad uh, Thanksgiving or Christmas. Uh, but Jesus will be there and he'll be proud of you. So as difficult as it is, uh, that would be my counsel. You're not getting in the way at all. In fact, you're getting out of the way so that they have to deal with God. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, okay, Vicki. God bless you. You know, I realize, especially with, with holidays, how difficult this is. Now, I would have no problem if they were if they were um, professing unbelievers. Um, I would have no problem uh, having them at the house. Um, um, but, but I'd treat them like an unbeliever. They'd hear about Jesus. And, of course, that's not what they're going to want to do, so they probably would excuse themselves. But especially with our grown children that are making their own decisions— uh, they've got to 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 deal with with the Lord, and I think sometimes we parents so hate watching that process that we get in the way. Vicky was um, was doing exactly the right thing. God bless you, Vicky. Let's go to Thomas holding on line three. Thomas, thanks for holding. You're on the air. Thank you for taking my call, sir. Mm-hmm. Uh, the question I have is on tithing. Mm-hmm. And uh, my church uh, recently, my pastor passed away, and the church closed down for a while, and then the pandemic closed it down again. They've been reopened, but I had sent some tired checks in, and they never did cash them. And mm-hmm. I don't know what know what happened to them. So in that interim, I decided to start tithing to some of my sister churches and mm-hmm. to... My wife go to a different church, and I tied over there. So I'm trying to get clarification on, am I doing the right thing in tithing? Um, well, yeah, a couple of things. Let me let me be general at first. Tithing is is simply not a New Testament concept. Um, we we we're to give uh, with grateful hearts. Uh, we're to give. We'll give with with thanksgiving to the Lord. But but it, the, the idea of giving ten percent, Thomas, is is simply that's a law, the Old Testament law. And ten percent, by the way, in the Old Testament, actually turned out to be closer to twenty six or twenty seven percent because there were different ties that were given to different areas. But um, we, we're simply not required to tithe. Now we give. And we give because we're grateful to what God has done, and we give to the work of God. So it really doesn't matter where you're giving. Now, if the church that you sent your checks to has not cashed them, I would stop payment on those checks, and I would let them know that you stop payment on those checks because if, if they if they find them in a drawer somewhere, or, you know, a year from now, um, you don't want it to mess up your bookkeeping. Uh, but just let them know that that I sent checks and nobody's written, so I've stopped payment on them. Uh, if that causes a problem, let me know. But yes, you can, you can give to any work of God that, that, that you want to. Just remember, you're doing it from a cheerful heart. You're not doing it out of obligation. You're not doing it because it forces God to, to then give you more. You're doing it simply because you're grateful to the Lord. And if you've got some um, uh, churches that, are, that are, are faithfully serving the Lord, then giving to them is fine. So you're in, you're in good shape. Uh, I would only ask you, as I, and I get tithing questions a lot, Thomas, I would only ask you to just make sure the motive of your heart is, God, I am giving to you because everything I have belongs to you. And I think that's the biggest difference, Thomas, between Old Testament and New Testament giving. In the Old Testament, under law, a law which condemned us, 
Um, they gave uh, um, up to 27% uh, in the New Testament were to give everything to the Lord. Now, he's going to let you keep most of it, Thomas. But here's the thing. If we'll simply say, okay, Lord, look how much money you've blessed me with this month or this week. Thank you, God. It's all yours. What do you want me to do with it? And I'm confident he will give you some pretty clear direction, Thomas, about how to do it. But bless your heart for for wanting to to uh, support the work of God. But yeah, it's okay to support other works as long as they're faithful, Bible-teaching, Bible-believing churches. Good question, Thomas. Thank you very, very much. I wonder how many churches sort of got carried away with... Um, their bookkeeping and stuff during the during the pandemic. Here's a question from our email inbox. This one is from Jeffrey. Jeffrey. A good day, Pastor Ron. Blessings to you and Paula. Thank you, Jeffrey. I was reading Exodus 17, verse 8. Just want to know who was Amalek. These people appear. They hated the Israelites. They did. They really did, Jeffrey. My Bible commentator states that these are family members of Esau, uh, is this the Esau who sold his birthright in Genesis? What group of people will they be in today's time? Um, thank you for answering. Um, let me let me start by saying they were not Esau's descendants. That was the Edomites. So um, the Amalekites were a completely different people, and uh, you're right, they absolutely hated God's people. Um, Amalek is a type of the flesh. All of the ites. Uh, the Amalekites, the type of the flesh. And um, um, the Amalite, Amalekites rather came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim, it says. And, and I think, uh, Jeffrey, this is a very important section of Scripture. Um, I say that because God makes a point to tell Moses to write it down and be sure to tell Joshua everything. And here's why it's important. Because... The Amalekites in particular, and they're the ones that during the Israeli uh, Exodus wilderness, they sort of hung at the back of the pack. Um, they got the low-hanging low fruit. In other words, they would pick off the old and the young, the weak and the sick, the infirmed, uh, and, and they were judged um, harshly as a result. In fact, God told... Um, Samuel, and he told Saul to destroy the Amalekites completely. And, and Samuel, uh, I'm sorry, and Saul didn't do it. Um, the Amalekites, for you and for me, it's a picture of our flesh. Now, there are no Amalekites. They have been wiped out. You can't find an Amalekite today. But uh, the, Amalek is alive in your flesh and mine, Jeffrey. Um, um, God was preparing the Israelites to battle um, the enemies. It's a battle that we have to realize every day is a battle that we fight. Uh, there's always an attack of the flesh in our future. Um, the Amalekites hated God, uh, and I, I misspoke earlier. Okay, let me let me let me rephrase this. I said they were. Uh, descendants of Amalek, Amalek was a descendant of Esau. So it, it, it's not that the Amalekites are direct descendants of, but but a generation removed. Um, and of course, we know Esau was a carnal guy. He sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. Uh, Amalek had a large group of descendants uh, who were brutal people. Uh, their desire was to completely wipe out the people of Israel. And they did unspeakable things. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, uh, Moses writes, Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out. They met you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. And that's why they would be judged. And, and uh, you know, our flesh is always looking to trip us up. And, and that's why the Amalekites are a type of the flesh. So that's who they are, and they're, they're descendants of Esau, only a generation removed, but not directly. The direct descendants of Esau are the Edomites. Sorry for the confusion, Jeffrey. Thank you for the question. Here is a question from... Got to find it, get my cursor. Uh, Jeremy. 
He said, can you explain the mysteries that Paul speaks about in his letters? Yeah, Jeremy, I I think about this a lot. I, I love thinking about the mysteries. Paul was the vessel through whom God revealed um, several mysteries. Um, the, the mystery of the Holy Spirit, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Imagine what that was like when Paul got that revelation. The mystery, Ephesians chapter 2, or the, 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 the mystery of the church, Jew and Gentile becoming one instead of two bodies uh, that don't like each other. In Christ, the two becoming one. Um, the mystery of the rapture of the church. Um, it was never fully explained until Jesus explained it to Paul. Now, what I'd like to know, I won't know, Jeremy, till we get to heaven, is I'd like to know uh, when God revealed those mysteries. Now, I personally believe that probably in that three-year time in Arabia, uh, at the beginning of Paul's walk with the Lord, when it was just him and Jesus, and Jesus taught him directly, um, and 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 probably those mysteries were revealed. Can you imagine what that must have been like to a, a militaristic Jew like Saul of Tarsus was? And yet everything was turned right side up by Jesus Christ. So those mysteries are the primary mysteries that Paul reveals. And the Greek word is mysterion, and it simply means uh, this is something that hasn't been revealed. Uh, there's no doctrinal information prior to Paul giving it to us about these doctrines of God. Uh, the mystery of the church, Jew and Gentile becoming one. Uh, the mystery of Christ in us, the hope of glory. And the mystery of the rapture of the church. So those are the mysteries that Paul speaks about. Good question, Jeremy. Thank you. Here is an anonymous question. It says, is it right to say that every Christian should speak in tongues or they are lacking something? No, anonymous, they're not lacking anything. Now, I'm going to, I hope I'm not going to be confusing here. Uh, I believe personally that God will give the spirit, uh, the gift of the spirit of tongues to every Christian who has, who, who will ask and receive by faith. Now, having said that, I don't want this to sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. But having said that, it is clear that not every Christian will receive the gift of tongues. Now, the reason I think God would give the gift to everybody is Paul said, I would that you all spoke in tongues more than I do. Paul is extolling the virtues of the gift of tongues. But the reality, Anonymous, is that there's a whole bunch of people that simply don't understand the gift of tongues, and because they don't understand it, they don't want it, and they don't have the faith to receive it, uh, in large part because they just can't figure out what value it has. And I think this is one of those gifts where we've got to say, Lord, every good and perfect gift comes from above. So if you've got a gift for me, I don't want to miss out on it. I want everything that you have for me. I don't want to miss out on anything. And then like every other gift of God, we have to receive it by faith. And I think too often, Anonymous, I know a lot of people that really would like to have the gift of tongues, but it just doesn't make sense to them, and they just don't have enough faith to begin practicing it or using it. And here's what I think should happen. Uh, if if you want the gift of tongues, ask for it. Jesus said, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And in, uh, along with the Holy Spirit, we receive the gifts the Spirit has for us. And I think what we have to do, instead of waiting for something to overwhelm us, in the book of Acts, the the people that were there were overwhelmed by the Spirit of God. They they couldn't help themselves. Um, But that was a one-time-only event. For you and for me, Anonymous, the gift of tongues is a gift that God wants to give us to enhance our prayer relationship with him. It's an edifying gift. I I call it a vertical gift between me and, and, and the Lord. And um, it's just to make my relationship with Jesus um, more passionate, uh, more worshipful. Um, The gift of tongues is a gift where uh, I know I'm praying in the will of God, even though I don't know what I'm praying about. I do not have the gift of interpretation. Um, But I think it's like everything else. You've got to use it in proportion to your faith. So if you want the gift of tongues, you've got to say, Lord, your word never fails. I asked for it. You gave it to me. And now I'm going to use it. And it's really uncomfortable at first because you, you don't know 
what you're saying, and it sounds silly. And of course, the enemy's right there to tell you, "Oh, you're faking it. That's not the spirit." And and you you've just got to understand that it's God who has you covered. And if you walk in that gift, God will enhance the gift. And I think it's a wonderful gift, and a lot of people are missing out on Anonymous. I do want to repeat, though, you're not lacking anything uh, if you don't speak in tongues. That is um, a, a really horrible, horrible take on the gift of tongues. And there's just too many churches, and they're, they're wild, like charismatic churches typically that say if you don't speak in tongues, you don't have the Spirit, or you're not filled with the Spirit. If you're not filled with the Spirit, you don't know Jesus. It's that simple. So I know a lot of Spirit-filled Christians who do not have the gift of tongues. So if you don't have it, don't stress. If you want it, go to God and ask for it, and then just receive it. Take a walk with Him. And just say, Lord, I want this gift, and I want it because I want to be closer and more intimate with you. I want to know that there are times when I can pray, and I know my prayers are being heard. And then start practicing it. Don't worry about making sounds. It's just you and the Lord. And I've always believed he's really pleased when we do something that seems silly to us, but we do it because he said that we could. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Well, we don't have a lot of time left in this part of the program. 340-9585 if you want to sneak in a phone call. Um, Gloria asked this question, how can Satan believe he will overthrow God in the end? You know, Gloria, that's a question that, that I think all of us as Christians have really wrestled with over the years. Um, and, and the only conclusion I've come up to is that sin is so insane. And this is the most evil being ever. And he really thinks that he can overcome what is already determined by God. Now, we know the devil reads the Bible. He quotes it or actually misquotes it. So he knows how it ends. But I just think that's what pride is like. It's insane. And Satan, and and I don't know whether it's one of those things where he really believes it or where he's just fighting against it. Um, but but he's doing everything he can to disrupt the will of God in all of our lives. So I know Christians that think they can be happy rebelling against God. And I wonder, how can people think that sin is insane? And that's the only answer I have for it, Gloria. I don't have anything better than that. You probably have come up with a better answer than that one. Here is a question from Martin. He says, does God have a specific career in mind for me, and how can I find out what it is? Martin, no, it's it's not like God has a career that he's going to make you pursue. But here's what I can tell you. God knows what career you're going to end up with. And so this is one of those things that you've got to put under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And the way you do that is simply say, Lord, your will, not my will, be done. And Martin, I don't want to be... Um, um, I don't want I don't want this to sound naive. I don't want to sound like I'm trying to be hyper spiritual. But here's the way to find out exactly what God wants for you. That's to walk with Jesus today. Do it again tomorrow. Do it again the next day. And and when a bunch of days pass, you're going to find yourself doing something right in the middle of God's will. And you're going to know what it is. You know, we stress over it. Well, did I marry the right person? Do I have the right career path? Do I? Um, should I leave this job? Just walk with Jesus every day. Honor God where you are. And the result will be that you will be with Jesus. And when you're walking with Jesus, Martin, you, you can't miss his perfect will for your life. So I don't know what that career is. God knows what you're going to choose. But whatever you're doing right now, whether you're a student or you're working in another career field or you've just got a job, Be the best that you can and do all things as unto the Lord. And let God use where you are. We have a saying here, bloom where you're planted. Um, Doing what you're doing, be the best you can be for the Lord. Remember that he's watching. Remember that he's the one who's pleased. He's the one who rewards you. And and what will happen, Martin, is that you will um, find yourself being led by the Spirit and you're going to end up in a place where you never dreamed possible. You know, Martin, I had a career uh, more than 21 years in the automobile business. I started out 
um, just by answering a no experience necessary uh, ad and started selling cars, found out I was good at it, made a lot of money and ended up owning my own dealership or at least part of an own, my own dealership. And, um, um, and, you know, I thought that was my career. Uh, then I got saved um, and everything changed. I never could have dreamed that I'd be doing what I'm doing right now. And the only way that I got where I am right now is by walking with Jesus every single day. From the day I got saved until this very moment, I want to be with Jesus every day. And he's the one who's leading my steps. I call him Lord. He calls me by name. And I follow him. And Martin, that's when uh, we have the assurance that we're right in the middle of God's will. And to everybody in the audience, there's just nothing quite like knowing that you're right in the middle of where God's will is for your life. So how do you get there? It's easy. Make where you are now his will for your life. Serve him with all of your heart, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, with all of your soul. And then he will direct your steps. And you won't have to make those decisions. Do I have a call? No. 30 seconds. Oh, okay. I thought I was at a phone call. No. So, Martin, I hope that answers your question. Hey, we're about out of here now for this week. Uh, tonight I'm going to be teaching Philippians chapter 1, the first eight verses. We get to start a new book tonight. May the Lord bless you and keep you. When you go to church on Sunday, find somebody who needs your encouragement and be there for them, pray for them, and love them. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll be back on AM 630 The Word on Monday. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.